Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Turn uh, in your Bibles, if you have one, to Philippians. We're doing a series talking about community. And uh, we're now four weeks in, and we'll be looking this morning at a part of it that is, uh, I think, uh, changing, uh, shifting gears a little bit. So far, Paul has been talking about uh, himself and some struggles he's been through as a minister and how God has really met him and how God meets us. And uh, in this passage we're looking at today, he's shifting gears and bringing up something that the Philippian church is dealing with particularly. And so we're going to read Philippians chapter 1, really verses 27 and following. If you're willing and able, out of respect for God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read together God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord he's given to us because he loves us and because every word of it is true. Let me pray and ask him to bless us as we uh, look at it in a little more depth. Uh, Father, we think back uh, to the first century and uh, the things that people endured for your sake. And uh, we look at our lives here and we endure some things. But there are other things that we haven't encountered. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see in your word how you would direct us to live in our present day, in our present time. We pray that you would minister to us by your spirit, that we would see your love, but we'd also see your holiness and your righteousness. That we would see not just that you're tenderhearted and close to us, but we'd also see that you're the king and the powerful one. And you call us to live according to your word and scripture. Would you bless us now? Would you be with us? And Lord, I pray that you would be with me. I'm weak in body and spirit, probably in mind too. Uh, I'm tired, um, but I'm also uh, just in need of you to be with me, help me to hold forth words of life to the people who are here. Would you be pleased uh, to minister to our souls? The things I leave unsaid, would you say them? The things I oversay, would you help us to forget them? And Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself in the preaching of your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Have a seat. There we go. And that's leaking all over everything, so can't do that. Alexa, I'm allowed to leak all over your stuff. So I'm just gonna right there, stay. Okay. Um, as I was reading through this this week and praying through the passage, uh, there was a question, or really a series of questions that came to mind. They're really very similar. And it's a question if you got the newsletter that we send out, I, I put in one form. But really what it's asking is, is uh, can God ask us to do something hard? 
can God ask us to do something that will cost us? Well, can God ask us to do something that we really don't want to do? Now, the question is not, will God be with me when things get difficult? That's a different question. Will God be with me when life gets hard? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely. Because if you look at the words of Scripture, God says, never will I leave you or forsake you. Jesus says in the Great Commission, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. If you look at um, the shepherd psalm, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you were right there with me. So the answer to that question is, God gonna, is God going to be with me when I go through hard things? The answer is yes, of course he's going to be with us. Um, and some of us really know that. We've been through very hard and difficult things, and God has met us right in the midst of that. So in places like Romans 8.28, we know that to be true. For in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So of course, God is going to be in it. He's working through it. Absolutely. Jerry Bridges says this about Christians just facing suffering in general. He says, that which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and he brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for his glory and our good. Those of you who've been through hard things, you can say that. It was for his glory, it was for his good. But the question we're asking today is a little bit different. It's not, will God be with me when things get hard? Um, is it, but is it okay for God to ask something that is hard of us? It is, God, is it okay for God? Can God ask us to do something that's hard? And the answer is, of course he can. He's God. <laughs> and he's, he's done that before with other people. With Noah, go and build an ark. It's going to take you a really long time. There's going to be a flood, but go do this. And people are going to think you're crazy, but go do this. Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go so they may worship me in the desert. Uh, when he, he said to Isaiah, go and preach to people who will never listen to you. They're stiff-necked, but go and do this. To all of the apostles, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, right? So yes, God does this. He does ask us to do those kinds of things. Um, so what's the hard thing he's asking us to do here? Paul is talking to us about living by faith in a community of faith, even when facing cultural opposition. So that's what we're talking about a little bit this morning. You want to talk about that? Good, good. Because some of you are already talking about that amongst yourselves, so we'll, we'll talk about this. First point, uh, faith in the worthy. Verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. For many of us, uh, when we hear those words, worthy of the gospel, uh, all of a sudden, we, it triggers us, and all of our spiritual insecurities kick in. And we think, oh no, he's telling me I have to live worthy of the things that God is telling me to do. Like, but I know I'm not worthy. I haven't done all the things that I'm supposed to do. And you're right about that. But I want you to understand what he's saying and what he's not saying. He's, he's not saying that you, by what you do, are making yourself worthy of heaven, or making yourself worthy of the gospel. Because if that were the case, none of us would ever be able to do that. That's not what he's saying. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1... Verse 12, we read this. We give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints in light. So what he's telling us in Colossians, which he doesn't tell us here, but elsewhere, is God qualifies us. God makes us worthy by what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. So Jesus has done two things for us. He's made us worthy in two ways. Uh, he's paid, let's say it this way, he's made two payments for us. 
So imagine it this way. Um, you're, a, you're a high schooler. You're really wanting to go to this concert, and uh, you're really wanting to make some money off of it, and you find where they've printed all the tickets. You know, this is when they used to print tickets instead of just getting it on your phone. So, so you, have a, you're gonna, you decide, I'm going to steal these tickets for me and my friends. So you steal the tickets so that you can get in. But then you get caught, and you're going to go to jail, or you're going to have to pay this huge fine, whatever they're going to do to you at this point. And so somebody else pays the penalty for you, right? They pay it for you. They pay the, the money. You're not going to have to go to jail. You're not going to have to do those things. It's like, that's done. But you still can't go to the concert. <laughs> so the person who paid for you to get out of jail is also the person who pays for you to be able to go to the concert and enables you to be able to get into it, right? When we talk about what Jesus has done for us, he's done two things for us. We commonly think Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, which he has. And we talk about this all the time. He died in our place on the cross to pay for our sins. Absolutely. But there's a second thing that Jesus has done, which we don't talk about very often, and that is he lived a perfect life that is now credited as ours. So what that means is there are two payments that Jesus paid. He paid the penalty of his death, but he also paid the admission price of, our, of his life so that we can go into the present. He has made us fully worthy. He has taken away all of our sin, and he's given us all of his merit. So Jesus lived the life we could never live, and he died the death that we should have died so that we could be made right with God. And so this is extremely important for us to, rec- to realize this because when we hear passages, a lot of passages in Scripture, we think there's something I have to do for God to accept me. I know he loves me, but I still think there's something I have to do for him to really love me. So several years ago, when I was, ca- when I was counseling college students, and I still do this on occasion, I started people asking people a different question. Instead of asking the people the question, do, do you think that God loves you? Because most people go, yeah, he loves me. Um, of course he loves me. He loves everybody. I asked, do you think God likes you? And when I asked that, students would look at me with this kind of quizzical look on their face, like, huh, I've never thought about that the way before. That's, does God like me? I don't, I don't know. That's an interesting. And the reason I ask that is because when you ask people if, they, if you think God loves you, they'll say yes, because most of us think that God loves us the way that we think our parents loved us. It's like, yeah, they love me for about two days when I get home from college, but by the third day, they're ready for me to leave, right? I love them, but I don't like them. You know, that's the way a lot of people think. It's like that seemed to be the experience people had with, with their parents. They love you, but they quickly grow weary of you. They don't really like you. So do you think that God likes you? Do you think that God enjoys you? Do you think God delights in you as his child? I was reading, uh, you know, I read things online, a lot of spiritual things. Um, There's a guy named Stephen Whitmer, and uh, he wrote an article, and he he set up the scenario this way. He said, many Christians who know the gospel nevertheless struggle to experience and enjoy the Christ of the gospel. Perhaps that's in part because they're not at all sure he enjoys them. They live with the sense that Christ is often slightly fed up with them that they're just a few sins away from exhausting his patience, that he's more grumpy than glad when he thinks of them, that even if he's willing to forgive, he does so reluctantly and reproachfully. I remember sitting with a dear old saint who confessed to me that for years she had struggled with low-grade guilt. Although she was trusting Jesus, she never felt as though she measured up. In her mind, she was always letting him down. Do you think God likes you? 
Do you think that God loves you, delights in you, enjoys you? He looks at you and thinks, that's my child. Do you think that God, because of his love, has made you worthy, that his love makes you worthy and not your performance? So years ago, uh, my daughter was three. I didn't ask her if I could tell this story, but I'm going to tell it. Um, When she was three, uh, she had gotten like a little ballerina costume. And so she came out and she was dancing in our living room. And just kind of like, she would look at me and she would kind of stumble and she would, you know, she would dance. And the whole time, uh, I was entranced. She was absolutely beautiful there in front of me, dancing. Now, she would never make it on dances with, with the, Dancing with the Stars or anything like that, you know, but in terms of like at a three, her three-year-old age. But I looked at her, and everything she did just gripped my heart because of her and not the performance And this is the way that God loves us. It's not the performance that gets his attention. He loves us and he sent his son to die for us, to make us worthy, to take away all the guilt and to make sure we had the ticket to come into his presence because he loves us. We don't make ourselves worthy. Christ has made us worthy. And so if, you know, if Paul's not asking this question, if you are worthy of the gospel, he's asking a different question here. He's asking whether in your mind you think the gospel is worthy of you. Not meaning you set yourself over the gospel as its judge, but meaning this. Do you think the gospel is worthy of all of your time, all of your attention, of your whole heart and mind and strength and will, your time, your your priorities, everything about you, that the center of your life is this gospel? Do you think the gospel is worthy of you to give your whole entire life to it every single moment of every single day? Because that's what he's asking. And when he's talking about this, he's saying it is worthy. The gospel of Jesus is worthy. And uh, it displaces the old beliefs and it replaces it with something new in our lives. And, and he mentions what he's talking about here at least twice in this passage. In verse 27, he talks about the faith of the gospel. The faith. Now what he's doing in that verse is he's using the word faith not as a verb but as a noun. And not simply as a noun, but he's using it as with a, a definite article, not talking about your faith, but it, he's saying the faith. And what he's talking about is the content, the story, the message of Jesus, what he's done for us. And he's saying it's the faith in that it exists outside of you, whether you believe it or not. It's the faith of the gospel. It's the information. It's the declaration. It's the proclamation from God about what Jesus has done, the gospel. But then in verse 29, he uses a different he uses a different word in English. It's the word believe, but it's really functionally the same word in the original language, Greek. It's the word faith. And there he uses it not as a noun, but as a verb. And he's saying, your belief. You believing. So what he's saying is there's something outside of us that we come to believe. And why do we come to believe it? It's because of the nature of what faith is. Faith means really primarily three things. If you're in my, our Friday Bible study, we, or our Tuesday Bible study, we've talked about this. But faith means primarily three things. It means that you are convinced, captivated, and compelled by something. That first part of being convinced, I find it convincing. I think it's true, and because it's true, I have to live according to it. That's commonly talked about as what faith is, is I, I accept that premise is true. But it's deeper than that. In this way, it's not just... I'm convinced it's true, but I'm captivated by it. I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. I think it's the best thing I've ever heard. And I want that in my life. And I will do everything in my life to make sure that it's in my life. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, ever heard. 
And then the third thing is that it compels you. It, it, it's something you think, it's so important, it's so significant, it matters so much, I have to give myself completely to it. So it's, it's, I'm convinced by it, I'm captivated by it, and I am compelled by it. And this is what he's talking about here when we come with this passage. He's saying that you think the gospel is worthy of your life, right? It's, it's, it's one thing to live your life on your terms, and you think God is there to help you to navigate life on your terms, to comfort you when life doesn't happen on your terms. But it's another thing when God comes into your life and changes your terms to his terms. That is what faith is. I'm trading my terms for his terms because I'm convinced that his terms are better. What he's calling me to do and how he's calling me to live is better than what, I would, I have, what my culture tells me or what I would have chosen for myself. And so we come back to this earlier question, which is can, can Jesus ask us to do something hard that we may not want to do? And, and so we get to this passage about what Paul is saying is the hard thing. And this is the hard thing. Following Jesus even if it challenges our sensibilities and the sensibilities of other people in our culture. No matter what anybody else is saying or doing, to say, I live for God in a world that says live for yourself. And if you do that, what Paul is saying in this passage, and this brings us to our second point, is you're going to face opposition to that. You're going to face opposition. And that's true of any culture, any time period, anywhere. It's not just the United States, it's anywhere. So in verse 27, this is the shift And so in 27 and 28, we read this. Paul's talking about the situation that he's been through and that the Philippians are going through. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in any way or anything by your opponents. So Paul is saying they're having opposition because of what they believe. And why are they facing opposition because of what these Christians believe? It's because Christians aren't the only ones who believe something. Everybody, every single person who has ever lived on the face of the planet has believed something. We all believe something. And what he's saying is the people around you don't believe what you believe. And that's going to create some friction and some opposition. It always is. It's, and that's true of not just Christianity, but of anything where you have different beliefs about things. It's going to create opposition. And what's uh, uh, Paul, uh, people are always pushing back in a push-around world. And he's saying, this is what's going on with you, and this is what's going on with me. And for example, Paul refers in verse 30, he says, he speaks of a conflict that you saw I had, and now here, that I still have. So what's he talking about? It's something that he said, you saw this taking place. So what he's referring to is in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, it was when Paul was planting the church in Philippi. And I can't imagine ever dealing with anything like this as a church planter. Uh, I've never faced what he faced. But there was this one moment where there was a girl, a young slave girl, who had a, she was possessed by a demon. And Paul was so troubled by this girl crying out after them. And it said she was making a lot of money for, the, for her owners, the people who owned her. Paul was so disturbed by this that he turned around and cast the demon out of the girl. Right? It's like redemption comes into her. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, and Paul drives this demon out of this girl and she is released. And I don't know what it would feel like. I don't, one, I don't know what it would feel like to have a demon possession, but I sure don't know what it would feel like to have that all of a sudden end. But I'm imagining she's just there at peace 
for the first time. It's, it would be, that would be fantastic, right? Um, but people in Philippi who are not Christians, the people who owned the slave girl, don't rejoice that now she's free. They're angry because now they're going to lose money. And the thing they begin to say is these people are advocating foreign gods, foreign customs, things that are not a part of what we believe. And so they kind of round up this mob and there's a riot that ensues. And so Paul is put in prison for that, right? And so there was a clash between the redemptive kingdom God and the oppressive kingdom of Satan and the way it manifested itself in the world. And there was opposition. But this isn't the only time that Paul's dealt with this. And in fact, at this point, well, he's in jail again. Uh, for preaching the gospel, this was in Jerusalem, and he's preaching the message of salvation by grace through faith alone and not because of any ceremonial rites like circumcision that we may impose upon people. And so Paul's in prison for that uh, because the Jews said you cannot preach that and you can't have people who are not circumcised coming into this place. And so they also attacked Paul. So let me take a moment and just help you think a little bit about us. It's just true. Uh, we feel the tension between ourselves and our culture. There are times when you have heard, if you're a Christian in here, and maybe if you're, if you're not a Christian in here and you're kind of investigating, you've heard this on the news and other places too, uh, that Christianity is what's wrong with the world today. Have you heard people make that, say that sentiment? Have you heard people express real anger and loathing? Uh, it's really because of what we just talked about because Americans often don't think that we have a belief system because it's what we grew up with but we do, right? Americans also don't know that we have an accent, but we do, right? Uh, Rebecca, I thought it was Rebecca's dad, but I told some of you this story. It was years ago, is there was a guy who was, uh, it was in the South. There was, a, there was a family visiting from England. They had a very proper accent, a little bit like the Queen's English. And so they're on the bus, and this person is, uh, the bus driver's driving the bus around. He listens to this British family talking about all the things that they're seeing. And, uh, Finally, when they're getting off the bus, the guy who's driving the bus, as they're stepping off, says, do you people know you've got an accent? <laughs> we don't know, right? It's just it's what we're used to. It's like the, those English people, uh, the New Zealand people, they don't have accents. We don't have accents. Um, what he's saying uh, here is people don't know. Americans don't know that we have a belief system that's in place. Ours is called expressive individualism. It's, it's basically summed up in this idea that we should be able to do whatever we want to do as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. But there's, there's other, that sounds great, but when you get to begin to think about it a little more in depth, what people are saying is you should be able to self-actualize, to be important, to be significant, if, you're able, if you make decisions that put you away from the... the uh, the structures of tradition and family and society and religion is you make yourself important. You find who you are by saying, I'm stepping out and I'm different. I'm, I'm unique. I'm not, I'm not following what other people say. I'm going to step out. So all of our cultural heroes, most of our movies and television shows have that as a theme. Is there somebody who's stepping out and saying, I'm going to be completely different than everybody else and make my own choices? Right. Do y'all see this? Right. Okay. Um, and this is why people get so angry at Christianity. Because we believe that the gospel is true. And it's universally true. It's true of the real world. We think that Jesus in real time and space history rose from the dead. And we think that we have this marker in history that the, the universe and reality is a certain way. And that the resurrection is proof 
that Jesus is the Son of God and takes priority over everything else. And because of that, we say Jesus is Lord and he has a right to shape and determine how we live, but our culture says no, that we should be able to live however we want. So in a culture that says that we should be able to live however we want, God tells us things about how we live. He tells us that, uh, about how we should use money and think about money. God tells us whom we can or can't have a romantic relationship with. And some of you just immediately went to LGBTQ, but it is way bigger than that, right? Culturally, that's where we want to put it, but it's a lot more than that. So God tells us all of these things, and so it brings up this question, is if the gospel is jostling you internally, if the claims of God are jostling you and displacing things inside of you, does God have the right to do that? Does he really have the right to do that? And the answer, I think, biblically is, yeah, that's, he's calling us to believe him again. And sometimes, sometimes we see something that, where there's a juxtaposition and it brings clarity of saying, uh, what I'm pursuing, I don't like. I think his way is better. So Rebecca and I have a friend who was down at Mardi Gras years ago. And uh, if you've been to Mardi Gras, I rebuke you. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, Mardi, yeah, it was, uh, just, just kidding, just kidding. Um, but they were down for, she was down for Mardi Gras with some friends, and they were in college, and, you know, they were, they were partying down at, uh, in front of the, uh, I think, St. Louis Cathedral. Is that the one that's down there? Yeah, yeah, it's downtown, down in the middle part. Uh, and so she, at one point she looks, and there in the crowd, there's a guy who is dressed like Jesus. He's carrying a cross, and he's slowly moving against the throng. So everybody's pushing in one direction. He's just walking through silently, going the other and she said she watched, and she, it was almost like this picture of Jesus really being there. He, was, he looked like he had a beard and a man bun. Um, and so he was, he was walking, and all this debris was being hurled from the crowd at this guy. And she said she couldn't help but really see the real Jesus in his life and, being, and suffering. And she thought, he's going to die on the cross for my sins. And she said, that's when it began to dawn on her. These are two different ways of life. If I follow, I've got to follow with Jesus. I can't follow the throng. I've got to go with Jesus wherever Jesus is leading. And there are these moments of clarity that are like that for us. Frank Barker, who was a, he was a pastor in our denomination, he visited a man in a hospital who was gravely ill, and he wasn't going to leave the hospital alive. And so his physicians had told him, this is, you're not going to leave. This is your condition. And so Frank was invited to come and share the gospel with this guy. And about the time he'd finished sharing the gospel with this guy, one of his old drinking buddies had heard about him being in the hospital, and he came in. And so he's sitting there, and, and uh, he began to say to the patient, you're going to be okay, and when you get out of here, we'll pick up where we left off. I'll buy the booze, and we will have a great time. This isn't about alcohol, by the way. It's just like, what's going on with this guy? The patient said to the man, I'm not going to be okay, and I'm not going to leave the hospital alive. And the visitor just wouldn't hear it. So he kept carrying on and talking about what we're going to do when we get out and the places we're going to go together when they got out and he's going to buy the first round. And So finally the visitor left and the patient looked at Frank with this kind of astonishment in his face like, that was two completely different things I've been hearing in the past hour and a half. And Frank said, would you like to receive the gift of eternal life? And this guy said, you better believe I would. And so he was converted that day and I heard later that Frank had preached at this man's funeral. Um, but he believed in Jesus that day. Juxtaposition. 
Uh, there's a young girl I know here in town. Uh, she is uh, struggling because in her life recently, she has come to a renewed understanding of the gospel of Jesus, and she's reading her Bible every day, and she, she's different than she was this time last year. And what she's finding is the friends she had made previously, they don't know what to do with her anymore because she used to be very similar to what they were doing and living the same life, going in the same directions. But now Jesus is calling her into a different direction, a different path to be different in life. And she feels that and her friends feel that. It's like, what am I doing here? How do we begin to relate to one another and love one another in the midst of this? And I think that's part of why we need this kind of clarity because in the passage in verse 29, when Paul is talking about hardships and really the opponents that they're dealing with to their faith, he's saying that that may not be a sign of failure. It may be a sign that God is really at work in your life and using you in amazing ways because people are beginning to sit up and take notice that what you're saying is it's, it's displacing the thing that they believe culturally. It's challenging that. That might be a good process. In 2 Timothy 3 Verse 12, we read, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And often it's that strong conviction in the midst of facing people who don't like what you're doing, those opponents, that they have to say, okay, this person is loving me and caring for me and and being kind to me even as I'm attacking this person. I'm showing rage uh, towards the person. Um, When Paul and Silas were in, they sang hymns in jail. That's when they Philippian jailer saw this and he responds to it. When the apostles testified before the Jewish officials um, that Jesus was raised from the dead, they took note of how they were dealing with them boldly and confidently even though they were being oppressed by it. Now, the thing that we have to guard against is to say, Jesus has called us to love our enemies. But when we feel attacked sometimes by people, whether, it's a, whether you're out to eat with a friend and all of a sudden this person vehemently says things that are uh, really ugly about your faith and what you believe and about Jesus. The way that we want to respond quite often is retaliation. And the way we do this nationally is we often want to retaliate. We get angry and we get very vocal about it. But I came across this little this article in Christianity Today, and I, I really love what this person said. He said, the gospel is offensive because it says Jesus is the one who should be on the throne and not us. That's offensive to people, particularly in a culture that says, I should be on the throne. The gospel is offensive, but, if you, but you don't have to be. Since the content of the gospel is unashamedly offensive, we have to keep in mind that we don't necessarily have to be offensive ourselves. In other words, the gospel is offensive because it unseats the self from the throne of the heart and establishes God as king. If we have God reigning on the thrones of our hearts, we will not be quick to lash out or lack sensitivity in our witness. We come to unbelievers with the sensitivity and understanding that we too have been hungry and hurting from the hangover and lies of sin. We've been wooed by the hiss of the serpent. We know what it's like. Therefore, we can identify. We get it. We reach out in love and truth. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So that's what we see in Scripture. And so he's saying, you feel that press, and this is why you really need gospel community. And this is another part of what he's talking about, the community of faith. We need each other. Verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, when he talks about a manner of life here, the word in the original language is not talking about your personal integrity. It's not talking about your individualistic morality. 
The word that he's using there is a collective term that talks about living in community with other people. That's the word, as we live as people in community with other people who are bound to Jesus. This word has overtones of being bound together and as a result, obligated to people in community the way that we would be obligated to people in our families. And that's a real challenge to us as individualists. So not only is Paul saying it's hard to deal with opponents, but it's also hard to give up those things that are in your life so that you can be involved in real community with other people. So he says we're bound together. So in the passage, he'll say things like this. Verse 27, it talks about standing firm in one spirit. Now I know that when we translate that into our passages, a lot of our translations have spirit as with a lowercase s. It actually should be a capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit of God. There's a parallel else in the book of Philippians that really says this should be uh, standing firm in the Holy Spirit, which is very significant. Uh, Alistair Begg has this quote. He says, irrespective of the color of our skin, our background, our heritage, or our place of origin, all of those things are ultimately subservient to this amazing truth of the body of Christ. We were all baptized with one spirit. So what he's saying is if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. God is everywhere present. We talk about that as God being omnipresent. But he's also with Christians in a unique and special way. The Holy um, the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives through other Christians. Community is the way that we ex often experience the presence of God in the world. So the fruit of the Spirit is the way that we relate to one another. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are the way that we take care of each other and others in the world. So another person's words, another person who has the Holy Spirit, you've often found this to be the case, I found this to be the case, Another person's words become to you the very words of God. It has that power because that person has the spirit too and that person speaks to you from the word of God. Another person puts words to your prayer when grief has such a stranglehold that you can't even breathe. Will you pray for me? And that person prays and utters things that you think, I couldn't have said that better. That's exactly what I need to say. A person with the spirit speaks forgotten truths that often bring us to tears Another person who has a spirit, their presence gives you the, the strength to keep going. So what Paul is doing is challenging us. He's saying you need other people and to develop a community of faith, a deep community of faith. And then in verse 27, he talks about striving side by side, uh, seeking, seeking uh, the gospel, seeking these truths, seeking to be on mission together. Now, if you're a person in here who is uh, maybe pursuing and you're not a Christian, uh, I would counsel you. I'd say one of the best things to do is not to watch YouTube, <laughs> but probably to go and find somebody you know who's a Christian and sit down for coffee and just ask them questions because they can talk. They might not be able to answer all of your questions, but you'll get somebody who's trying to live this out and embody this in a very real way and this is the way that God commonly meets other people is through those relationships. Rebecca and I were remembering a, a family, a, a friend of ours uh, from my from high school. When he was on his honeymoon, he and his wife got to know this other couple. And uh, so they're on their honeymoon on a cruise together. This couple, they're on their honeymoon on a cruise. Uh, my friend from high school was a Christian. Uh, the guy and the girl who were on the cruise together, uh, I guess they would say it was their booze cruise honeymoon. Uh, they, were, they were pretty much drunk the entire time at dinner, everything. It was just like that's what they did for their honeymoon. 
And so they were, they were assigned the same table one night for dinner, and the folks that I knew from high school started sharing the gospel with this couple. I never knew that happened until years later, I, bumped, I met this couple, they're friends of my brother, and they were telling me about when they came to faith in Christ, and they mentioned the person's name. I was like, I know that guy. And it was just like, oh, your, your worlds are colliding, my worlds were colliding. And they talked about how that conversation over dinner changed everything for them. Following Christ, they met Jesus on their booze cruise honeymoon, <laughs> and that's when everything changed because they met people who had the Holy Spirit. That's significant. God says, I'm with my people in a unique and special way. And he's calling us in this passage, he's calling us as, as believers to, to move towards unity towards one another. He says, to, to one mind strive side by side to say, we love one another and we're invested in this relationship. There's a, I quoted from this person, I think in the past two weeks, Aristides, he's a, he was a second century Christian writer, uh, but he has this kind of extended quote. I want to, it's going to be on the screen, so it's not just going to be me reading. I'm going to read it in Greek. Um, uh, but he's um, kind of an extended quote where he talks about the second century church and the things that they were doing uh, because of the gospel in their lives. He's writing to the emperor, but he said, but the Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, have found the truth. And as we learn from their writings, they have come nearer to truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth, and whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion or equal, from whom they received commandments which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. And their oppressors, they comfort and make their friends. They do good to their enemies. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no, food to spare, no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness toward them. And for their food and their drink, they offer thanksgiving. So if Jesus were to call us to do something really hard, could we do it? Does he have the right to do that? So what's the hard thing God is calling us to do? Well, one, to believe, to live for Christ when others say that we should live for ourselves, to stand for him and with him when others may stand against him and sometimes against us, to love our opponents, to love one another well at cost to ourselves, to live a life because we recognize that the gospel of Jesus is worthy, to be convinced and captivated and compelled to trade out my terms for God's terms for how I live my life and to find the richness and the joy that is ours in the gospel. Let me pray for us. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.